If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. That can be found on page 946 of your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Why do you do what you do? Why does the average person do what they do? Kind of a meta question. Big or small, why do people do what they do? Why do they pursue this thing and not that thing? Why this friend group? Why this city? Why this career? Why eat this? Why avoid that habit? Why dress this way on this particular day? Why do people do what they do? Two motivations, I think, lurk behind all of our decisions. One of them certainly, the other one kind of more circumvents our decisions. The first of them is the pursuit of happiness. More than just a movie by Will Smith. People choose based on what will make them happy, either in the short or the long term. That is what, based on what they think will satisfy them. Blaise Pascal, a Christian philosopher and mathematician, wrote this famously in the 17th century. All men seek happiness without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attendant with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Aristotle, long before him, non-Christian philosopher in his Nicomachean ethics argued that happiness is man's highest good. He said, pursue all other things, other virtues included, quote, because we assume that it is through them that we will be happy. He argues that happiness is man's highest end. It's what we've been created and designed for. Or telos, you might say. Now, when I say that everything we do is a pursuit of happiness, I'm not meaning that with every decision we make, there's this kind of self-conscious uh, deliberation about, will this make me happy? Will this not make me happy? This may be happy six, happy three, you know, long-term eight, short-term four. Rather, we perceive what is good intuitively and our will move towards that, whether it's in the short or the long-term. I don't think it's hard for us to see that happiness is why people do what they do. It's why this person skips class, why this person studies, why this person maybe pursues a life of crime, why this person abides by the law, why this person grinds at work, why this person gives themselves to their family, why this person saves for retirement, why this person goes on spending sprees. Every act of the will is motivated by what someone thinks is going to bring them short or long-term happiness. Said differently, again, people are drawn toward their conception of the good, what they think is most satisfying and worthy. Okay, motivation one, we want to be happy. Motivation two, you might write this down, it's going to be mind. We do not want to die. This is why we generally take vitamins, why we work out, why we do annual physicals, why we're willing to undergo invasive procedures, traumatic treatments. It's why we use crosswalks. It's why we have so many hospitals, so many doctors. It's why for two weeks we hid in our homes, 
It's why for two years we, in a sense, shut down as a society. It's not a value judgment about that. It's just if you look at these last two years, people and nations were motivated by the fear of death in a very controlling kind of way. We do not want to die. We don't even like thinking about death. Now, the pursuit of happiness is still number one. Okay, this is why someone will get in their car, put their seatbelt on, fear of death, and then they'll light up a cigarette. Pursuit of happiness. <laughs> I get it. I want to work out, and I still want to eat wings. <laughs> a lot of wings. But generally speaking, people struggle to prolong their life. Okay, we want to be happy. We do not want to die. In a word, we want to live. And not simply to have pulse or breath. We want to be alive. We understand there's a difference. To quote William Wallace, or at least Mel Gibson's William Wallace, every man dies not, every man really lives. We want to experience the fullness of life, to attain to the highest good, to be blessed. And we don't want to die. In because we want our happiness to be everlasting without end and in part because we fear what is on the other side. Whatever the natural man may say about God, his guilty conscience tells him that what awaits is not bliss. We want to live to be fully alive, forever free from guilt and the wonderful news of the gospel is all of that is made possible in Jesus. Eternal life, Resurrection from the dead, freedom from condemnation, not only possible but actual for those who believe in him. Life, the remedy for death, freedom from guilt, they are all offered to us this morning in the words of Jesus. He tells us all we need to do is to listen. If you are able, I will stand with, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Listen now to the words of Christ, the very words of life. John 5, beginning in verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but is passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live for just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. You can be seated. As we'll see this morning, Jesus and Jesus alone offers and delivers what we were made for, which is life. Spiritual life, physical life, that is resurrection life. In Christ, the believer is freed from the penalty of sin. They are infused with the life of God, and they were given what they were made for, union with God. Said differently, eternal blessedness or happiness. The text this morning calls us to listen or to believe in Christ for two reasons. If you're taking notes, these are our points. 
First, believe in the Son because he gives life. Believe in the Son because he gives life. And secondly, believe in the Son because he judges justly. Believe in the Son because he gives life and he judges justly. More specifically, as the Son of God who is life, he gives life. And as the Son of God becomes Son of man, he will judge all men. By believing in him, we get the one and we avoid the other. First, believe in the Son because he gives life. Now, as we saw in the text, we're jumping in the middle of something. Jesus is now giving a kind of extended sermon. But it's a conversation that he's having with the religious leaders. You'll recall two sermons ago that Jesus had healed a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. Now, this causes the religious leaders to accuse Jesus of Sabbath-breaking because he healed this man on the Sabbath. Jesus responds by telling them, oh, it's no big deal, actually, because I'm God. Now, this moves them to accuse him of not only Sabbath-breaking, but blasphemy. This is last week's sermon. It would probably take an hour to recap it. If you didn't listen to it, I would encourage you to go back. But in short, Jesus is arguing that the reason he works on the Sabbath like the Father is working is because he is the Son from the Father. That is, he receives his being all that he is as the Son of the Father. All that the Father is, God, the Son is. This is why Jesus can only do what he sees the Father doing and everything that the Father does, the Son therefore does. The works of God are the works of son, the Son because the Son is God. And in particular, Jesus applies two divine prerogatives to himself, we saw. He gives life to whom he wants, and he will judge. In fact, he says that the Father doesn't do any judging. He's given it to the Son. These are the two works that Jesus is now going to pick up and expound upon. Namely, he can give life because he has life in himself from the Father, and he can judge the living and the dead because he is the Son of Man. That is, he is the second Adam, the true Israel, David's greater son, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, only doing as he heard will judge those who did not. We pick back up in verse 24. Consider the context. He's speaking to those who are accusing him of blasphemy, and he begins verse 24. Truly, I tell you. Now, we'll quickly pause even there. This is something that's lost to us in English, this Verily, verily, truly, 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 I tell you, Jesus is conveying a sense of urgency, solemnity. Okay, he's telling us, listen in. What I'm about to say is of life and death importance. Jesus, of course, is not like the boy who cried wolf. When he says this is a matter of life and death, we ought to give him our attention. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Right? The paralytic listened to my command and he walked. That is nothing compared to those who hear my word and believe. They will have eternal life. Now you recall that the book of John is written, John chapter 20, verse 31, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. John 5, 24, verses like it, we saw some in John 3, they are the heart of the gospel. 
that God sent his son from heaven. He gave him up, John 3, 16, not to condemn us, but to save us, to give us life. And Jesus calls it eternal life. This is not so much a description of the duration of life. We see in verse 29 that Jesus is going to raise all people. Wicked and good, he says. Some will go to life, some will go to condemnation. This is not a comment about quantity, but the quality of life that he's offering. He's talking about infinite, unending, heavenly, new age life. The thing that we most want to live, Jesus offers. And he offers it as we've seen everywhere he's gone. At the wedding in Canaan, he offered life, wine that's sweeter than our works. At the well in Samaria, he offers life, water more satisfying than our broken idols. At the home of the boy who was dying, he offered life that overcomes death. At the pool in Jerusalem, he offers eternal life that is life from God. And Jesus offers it freely to all who will listen. But if you look again at verse 24, you'll notice that Jesus assumes there are two obstacles to our living, two reasons we need life, death and judgment. In fact, Jesus assumes that people are already dead and condemned. We need to move or to pass from death to life, from condemnation to acquittal. Jesus isn't speaking about physical death here. We'll get to that below. Rather, he's saying that all are born spiritually dead, meaning our hearts are sinfully caved in on themselves. We are turned away from God such that we don't even desire God or do the things that please God of ourselves. We might say that people are born with living bodies but dead hearts. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that his greatest need, him a teacher of Israel, his greatest need is to be born again by the Spirit. So Jesus tells the woman at the well that her greatest need, what she needs is his water that springs up to eternal life. Why? Because her soul is like a valley of dry bones. This is why Jesus tells the man whom he just healed physically that he should stop sinning or something worse will happen to him. He's only half healed. People need life because they are dead. But because they're spiritually dead, they don't even realize they need life. If you've ever been around someone who's dying, been with them in some of their last moments, you know that typically what they want more than anything is more life. They're probably trying to stave off death. They are clinging to life. If you've ever been around someone who's dead, you know what they want is nothing. Grave sites are quiet. No one we've seen Jesus interact with him has pursued him because they think he's going to give them eternal life. It's something that he does for them in his grace. Those who are spiritually dead don't have the power or desire to move toward the God of life because they're dead. God himself must act, and he does. He gives us life and life eternal, which Jesus defines in John 17 as relationship, as knowing the Father and the Son whom he has sent the one we were made by and for. He is the water for whom our soul thirsts, the life for which our dead bodies need, the happiness for which we were created. What we want in all of our strivings is God in Christ, to be united to him and to experience all that we've ever desired and more. It is as Augustine wrote and prayed, our souls are restless until we 
can rest in you, God. There's an analogy to our physical bodies. We have cravings when you're hungry. It's because you need to eat. When you're thirsty, it's because you need to drink. When you're tired, it's because you need to sleep. We were made body and soul for relationship with God. All of our acts of the will are vain attempts to find happiness. It's this striving to fulfill a craving that was meant to be filled by God. We were made for relationship with him, and in sin we strive to do life apart from him. Jesus here is offering us what we were made for and so desire life. There's the obstacle of death, which he can overcome. There's one more obstacle, and it's the issue of judgment. Again, as we'll see below, Jesus raises everybody's bodies on that day, but it doesn't fix their problems. Some people will be raised simply to find themselves on trial for a life of crime against God. You see, more fundamental than the death problem is the guilt problem. The reason we have a death problem, both spiritual and physical, is because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. Death is here because of sin, because sin deserves death. What is owed to the sinner for his rebellion against God is eternal condemnation. That's what Paul describes as our wages in Romans chapter 3. It's as though the sinner wakes up every day to clock in the rebellion against God and earn his judgment against themselves. And yet, Jesus offers us full acquittal. So it makes the gospel so incredible. Listen again to verse 24. Remember, Jesus is speaking to those who are accusing him of blasphemy. If they would only listen. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, you cannot, cannot find a better or stronger offer or guarantee than what Jesus is giving us here. Those who deserve death get life. Those who deserve judgment are spared. It's like we're not even judged, he says. Imagine being on your way to court for something that you're guilty of. You know that you did it. You robbed the bank. You killed the teller. You get there. You meet your lawyer and they say, the case has been thrown out. You've been acquitted. No judgment, no stain on your record, no red in your ledger, you're clean. How is this possible? John three sixteen. for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son. John 1, 29, we hear on the lips of John the Baptist, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, meaning... The judgment that we deserve fell upon him. The prince of life was slain for those who were dead and deserved to die. The innocent king was crushed on behalf of the guilty. The wrath reserved for us went to him. Jesus took our obstacles to life. Sin and death, he took them upon himself as though they were his very own. Why? That we might be forgiven and free, alive and acquitted. This is the good news of the gospel, that not just any man died in our stead, but that the judge was judged, that life was killed, that the light of the world was snuffed out, 
that the innocent lamb was treated as guilty. Why? That we might live. Mankind, mankind is a serious problem, and God himself has paid the price. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing left for us to do. Look again at verse 24. How do we come by this life? Do we need to modify our habits? Do we need to undergo some kind of painful treatment or invasive surgery? Do we have a large bill to pay at the end? Is it by ceremony or rite, by penance or self-flagellation? No, we see that it is a gift. Verse 24, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It is those who believe that Jesus is God, become man, become lamb. Those who look upon him for salvation are saved. Non-Christian friend, whether you're an adult or a child, we are glad that you have chosen to gather with us this morning. What we pray for you this morning more than anything is to hear the words of Jesus. He is speaking to you right now through his word. Your biggest problem, sins, death, and guilt have been resolved in Christ. Your greatest desire, eternal life, is offered by him. We would implore you to simply believe in Jesus today, to give up, give up your struggles and to rest in him. Christian, notice again how God gives life. He gives it through his word. Recall your own testimony. Jesus spoke through someone else to you. Someone opened their mouths, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and through them Jesus spoke a word that raised the dead. If we want to honor Christ, verse 23, we should first listen to Jesus. We should make it our daily habit to cling to his word, to submit to it in joy. We should go further still and seek to speak his words to others. Jesus is the great missionary, verse 23 and verse 30. He is sent of heaven. Jesus likewise sends us to speak, to preach this good word that others might believe and have life. There is no other way. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. People come to faith, that is, they move from death to life, from guilty to innocent, by hearing the word of Christ. And God enlists ordinary people, us, to speak. Recall what Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thess chapter 2. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. Brothers and sisters, when you preach the gospel, you are preaching the very words of God. They're not static words. God dynamically speaks through them, blows his spirit, and gives life where there is death. Right? No president or senate has this kind of authority or power. We see the power in verse 25. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Some people have a really commanding voice. You might think of someone, you might have someone in mind. When they speak, everyone listens. 
Maybe it's the volume. Maybe it's their presence, their authority, their accent. I don't know. They speak and people listen. Some people have such power that with a single word, they can invade countries, they can impact global economics, they can bring nations up or down. No one, and I mean no one by the sound of their voice, can raise the dead. None of you or your friends have to avoid grave sites out of fear of raising the dead. No one can do this but God. Notice that John is very specifically drawing us to Jesus' words and his voice. It is those who listen to his word who receive eternal life. It is those who hear his voice who come out of the grave. Why? It's because of who Jesus is. He is the eternal word of God, John 1.1. By speaking this word, the Father created all things, John 1.3. It is through the Son's word, Hebrews 1.3, that all things hold together. By his very word, the dead come to life. His voice raises the dead. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37. There the spirit of the Lord takes the prophet into the middle of a valley full of dry bones. The Lord asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Lord God, only you know. God then tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones, to tell them, hear the word of the Lord. God then gives life. He breathes life where there is death. God spoke his word. Then through the prophets, he speaks through us today. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And he chooses to speak through ordinary men and women like us. Again, think about your own testimonies. You probably didn't come to Christ through the likes of a Billy Graham. He was a faithful brother or sister, mother or father who shared the gospel with you. And Jesus spoke through them life. Right now, Jesus is giving life to the dead. They are hearing his voice. They are coming out of the graves, as it were. Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to see that what will happen at the resurrection and the subsequent judgment is merely a revelation of what is true in this life. The dead are already dead and condemned. Those who are coming to life are doing so now. We should feel a great urgency to preach the gospel Your non-Christian friends, family, and neighbors will not get a chance to hear and respond to the gospel at the resurrection. They get a chance to hear and to respond every time they see you. And as you preach Christ's word, the same power that brought non-being into being, the same power that spoke the stars in the sky, that lifted the mountains and lowered the valleys, the same power that healed the lame, it's the same power that speaks to give life where there is death. He does so through the preaching of the gospel today. And when Christ's sheep, John 10, hear his voice, they listen. When his voice says, come out, dead men rise. When his voice says, it is finished, the guilty are innocent. His words are the very words of God. His voice and his voice can give life. Why? It's just basic principle. You can only give what you got. Spend time around little children. Go with them in public. You've learned this quickly. Can I have a quarter? No, I don't have one. Can I have a snack? No, I don't have. Can I have water? No, we left it at home. Can I have that kid's toy? No. I'll, I'll give you his family. 
You can only give what you got. Jesus can give life. Why? Not only because he has life, but because he is life. Look at verse 26. This is really the principle that undergirds his claim to be able to give life to the dead. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Again, if you recall the context, Jesus has been laboring to demonstrate why he's not guilty of Sabbath breaking. It's because whatever excludes God from working on the Sabbath applies to Jesus. He works as the Father works because he receives all that he is from the Father as the Son of the Father. Again, he is the Word of the Father coming forth eternally as his perfect self-understanding and self-expression. He is the image of the Father like a copy. We might say he is the Son of the Father, meaning he possesses the same exact nature. He's been begotten by him eternally. What the Father has in himself, life, he grants to the Son. This is what we saw last time. The Son receives all that he is and has from the Father, life included. Now, you're probably wondering, because you ask such questions, if the Father gives life to the Son, and the Son gives life to us, why does that make the Son God, but not us? Father gives life to, yes, see, you guys are wondering this, good question. Father gives life to the Son, the Son gives life to us, why is he God and not us? We receive it and possess it in a different way. You'll recall the creator, creature, little chart distinction. We were created, the Son is not. All things were created through. There's a point in time where we move from not existing to existing, from non-life to life. This is not true from the Son. He eternally receives this life and therefore is life. We saw John 1, 3, all things are created through him. John 1, 4, in him is life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus claims not only to give life, but to be life. We come into being in time because Jesus, who is life, gives it. He's not receiving it as a gift. It's something that God simply is, life. And notice, this is the big difference that the Father has life in himself, verse 26. He grants to the Son to have life in himself. This is not something that's being given to us. None of us, no matter how alive you're feeling this morning, none of us have life in ourselves. We're alive physically, if we're in Christ, we're alive spiritually, but all of us have life in God. God alone has life in himself because he simply is life. What that means is nobody created him. God is not the effect of some cause. No one or nothing stands behind God or before him. He is the great I am of Exodus 3.14. He does not depend upon creation for anything. Not for food or shelter, not for purpose or being. God simply is who he is. He necessarily lives. And again, as we've noticed, there's a difference between being alive and being fully alive. God isn't just alive. He lives life to the fullest. Rather crassly, we might say there is no FOMO for God. Okay, his life cannot be improved. It cannot be diminished. As Herman Bovink says, God is a boundless ocean of being. He has no needs, no want, no lack. This is why God can create. Psalm 36.9, he is the wellspring of life. 
He is an overflowing, never-ending fount of life. He can give to us what he himself is. Okay, we do not exist in ourselves. We depend upon God for every moment of our being. Every hair on our head, every cell in our body, the breath in our lungs, our very existence are given to us by God. It is in him that we live and move and have our being, Paul says, Acts 17, 48. And for those of us who have been redeemed, Galatians 2, 20, Christ lives in us. We depend upon God for life and new life. You can only give what you got and God has got it all. This is why all attempts to find life outside of Christ are exercises in futility. It's like asking a homeless man for a place to stay. It's like asking someone without a pulse for their heart. It's like drinking water from a sandy well. It's like asking for a ticket from a man holding a sign that says, I need tickets. He probably has tickets. You can only give what you got. The good life can only come from the one who simply is goodness and life himself. Jesus offers to us as a gift life, freedom from judgment. He can do so because he is life and because he is the judge. Believe in the son because he gives life. Believe in him also because he judges justly. We come to our second consideration. Believe in Jesus because he judges justly. Jesus goes on now picking up the second divine prerogative that he applies to himself. We see in verse 27. And he, that is the Father, has granted him, or God has granted him, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now notice if you look at the text that God is granting the Son two things. One, he gives him life in himself because he is the Son of God. So you think about our creator, creature, little chart. That's taking place on the creator side. Here the Father is granting Jesus the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is taking place on the creature side of the T-chart. And it has to be the creator, God become man. Jesus, the divine Son, he assumes not only flesh but a human office. It's given to him more specifically after his victorious resurrection and ascension. We read about this corporately in our scripture reading of Daniel chapter 7. You feel free to flip there if you want to look at it. There we see that Daniel is given this heavenly vision. He sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne and then one like a son of man. More literally, and perhaps obviously, one like a human coming with the clouds of heaven. He, this one like a human, approaches the throne of God. He's then given this dominion, glory, an everlasting kingdom so that people from every Nation and language should serve him. Now thinking about the text and what we know from the New Testament, Daniel sees the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, receiving all authority on heaven and earth, Matthew chapter 28, before whom every tongue and nation will bow and confess that he's Lord, Philippians 2, Revelation 5. According to Jesus' divinity, he already possesses all power to judge. He has nothing to gain. He's God. He receives that eternally as son, but as man, he becomes, right? He becomes man, obedient even to the point of death. He was treated like a slave and a criminal. Jesus moves from criminal slave to king of the earth. It's something that is given to him. And what do kings do? They judge. 
This is why Jesus again says in verse 22 that the Father, in fact, doesn't judge. He's given it to the Son. It's a divine prerogative that's given to the God-man, Jesus Christ. When the wicked of the text stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, they are going to see a man, the God-man. They are going to look upon one who looks like them, one who is also tempted like them, one who is subject to the law like them, but who unlike perfectly obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. They will stand before the God-man they rejected. They will see his voice, his mouth move. They will hear him say, condemned. The Son of Man will judge. He tells us, verse 28, do not be amazed at this. I think Jesus is saying, don't be amazed because of how outlandish everything he's saying probably initially sounds. He's saying he's God, become man, who will one day judge everybody after he rips them out of the graves. Okay, if somebody told me that they were God and they were about to turn the world into the walking dead, I would be surprised. They, of course, should be able to make the connections as the teachers of God's law, but they don't. Jesus goes on, 28, do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Notice this is all. You might be inclined to think that the resurrection of the dead is something that's reserved for Christians. That's what scripture tends to focus on. 1 Corinthians 15 would be an example. And if you want to read more about the resurrection of the dead, I would encourage you to read that this afternoon. The reality is when Jesus returns, he will raise the bodies of everyone. All will come out of the grave. No one will miss his voice. It's not like an alarm that you can snooze or miss. All, both good and wicked, Christian, non-Christian, all will hear his voice and come out. Our statement of faith summarizes it this way. We believe that death is not the end. That though the bodies of men after death return to dust, their spirits live on. The righteous departing immediately to be with the Lord. And the wicked to be reserved under death to the judgment. The soul of the believer upon death goes immediately to be with Jesus. Okay, you don't have to worry about where your godly grandmother is at. They immediately depart to be with Jesus. Paul says, Philippians 1.23, it's better to depart and to be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body, for a Christian is to be at home with the Lord. And yet, in a way that's really difficult for us to understand, as wonderful and perfect as that experience is, there's something that's still incomplete about it, because to be a human is to be both body and soul. Okay? It's, it's wonderful, and yet there's something that's still incomplete about it. It's provisionary. They're humans without bodies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a bit like being naked. You don't want to be naked. You want to be clothed with the body and one that's incorruptible. It's hard to think about. Maybe it's like eating a steak without silverware or going to courtside seats at a game without your glasses. It's something that's incredible, and yet there's part of it that's slightly incomplete. Because to be human is to be body and soul. We will long for the day to be reunited to our bodies and for Christ to vanquish his enemies. When Christ returns, those who have already died will return with him. We see this if you want to read more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Okay, The saints who have gone before us and have already passed, crossed the River Jordan, 
we will see them if we are alive on that day. They will come with Jesus. Their bodies, first Paul says, will rise. They'll be reunited. If we happen to be alive when it's, this is happening, let's say Tuesday at 4 p.m., they'll be reunited to their bodies first. We then will be glorified, we'll be caught up to the air with Christ. He will judge. He will remake a new heavens and a new earth. Earth itself will become heaven. Now, the non-Christian soul upon death also leaves their body. They go, our confession says, to be reserved under darkness to the judgment. We see this, we think, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, especially in Luke chapter 16, where the cruel rich man leaves his life of luxury for immediate pain and punishment away from the people and presence of God. Christian or not, your body, when you die, goes to the grave. Christian or not, when Christ returns, your body will be raised from the grave. Christian or not, your soul will be returned to your body. That is where the similarity ends. Again, Jesus says the time is coming. It's coming. We're one day closer now. It is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. This is also a callback to the book of Daniel. This coming from chapter 12, verse 2. There Daniel writes, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. We see that the resurrection and the judgment are inextricably linked. The voice who is there at the beginning, let there be life, will be there at the end. It is his voice that our bodies will hear in the resurrection. It is his voice that the wicked will hear in judgment. Jesus' word will be the first and the last. Those who have done good things will walk into life eternal. Those who have done wicked things, Jesus says, into judgment. That is trial, verdict, subsequent punishment. Now, Jesus says in verse 24 that those who believe are given eternal life. They've already passed from death to life. Here he's saying it's those who do good will go to the resurrection of the life. Has Jesus changed his mind in like five verses? I think not. No doubt condemnation comes by work. Salvation comes by the work of Christ, which we receive by faith. I think Jesus has one of two things in mind here. Again, he has not changed his mind. We receive life by believing we already pass from death to life. We already have been deemed innocent and righteous. Jesus on chapter 6, verse 29, says that this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Jesus might simply just mean that those who do good are those who have done the work of God, which is to believe in the gospel. That could be it. Or Jesus might mean simply that faith always leads to works in such a way that judgment can even be done based on works. We see this in Matthew chapter 25, verses, uh, what is that, 30 or 31 through 40 or so. There Jesus is judging based on how people have treated his brothers and sisters, that is Christians. Christians, either way, faith leads to works, right? Christians should not be so similar to the world that you can't tell who's who. It will be painfully obvious on that day, not just because of faith, but because of works. If your habits, your ideologies, your attitudes, your deeds simply repeat and parrot the world's ideologies and ethics, 
You should be concerned. Jesus can judge us based off our works because faith always leads to works. He recreates us. He indwells us with his spirit. He spurs us on as we walk toward heaven. It will be quite clear on that day who the Christian is. It should be clear today. Either way, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ will return to judge. Our statement of faith goes on and reads this way. On that day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead, both righteous and wicked, from the grave to final judgment. That a solemn separation will then take place which will fix forever the final state of men. The wicked being sentenced to everlasting conscious punishment in hell and the righteous to everlasting life joy in the new heavens and the new earth. The Christian will rise to life. They will hear an eternal welcome. They will gaze upon God. They will be free from sin and suffering. The non-Christian will rise to judgment and hear never-ending condemnation. Again, brothers and sisters, the judgment is only a revelation of what is true in this life. Jesus tells us, John 3.18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You might say that at the judgment, the Christian will find out that they're a Christian, which they knew all along. They will get what they most desire, which is to be with God. The non-Christian will find out they're not a Christian, which most of them knew all along, and they will get what they want, which is to not be with God. Brothers and sisters, this verse is as encouraging as it is sobering. For those who hear, listen, and believe, the most pain we will ever feel is in this life. Sin, death, broken relationships, heartache, terror, it's reserved for here and now. What awaits us is eternal bliss. The suffering of this present age, Paul says, Romans 8, 18, is not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. Right? You don't complain about the dollar you spent on a winning lottery ticket. It doesn't even compare to the glory that's to be revealed for us. Conversely, the goodness the non-Christian experiences now is nothing compared to the suffering that will be revealed for them. Because all of the goodness that they experience even now is a virtue of the fact that God is being good to them. They spurn him and they will be cast out of his presence. Brothers and sisters, this may be hard for us to understand, but God is just. He only does what is right. He only gives what is owed. Jesus goes on, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Son of Man will raise the dead and judge all, and he will only do so in accordance with perfect justice. As God, he possesses the same will as the Father. As man, he will perfectly submit to what he hears from God. His dominion, his rule, his throne are established in perfect righteousness. You see, when we understand the weight of sin, we want justice. 
the events at Uvalde, if they don't move you, you're a moral monster. You're angry that someone could take the life of children. You're probably frustrated that the police sat there for hours. You want wrongs to be made right. When you understand sin, you cry out for justice. Our problem with God's justice is we do not understand the weight of our sin or of his holiness. Brothers and sisters, on that day when we see the pierced and resurrected stand in all of his glory before the nations who raged against him, we will understand. We will not decry his justice. We will wonder why he had any mercy on us at all. We, NBC, will walk into the resurrection of life knowing that we deserved death. And for life eternal, we will look upon the one who gave himself, who gave himself up that we might live. And for all of time, we will cry out with the people of God, worthy is the lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Believe in that son because he gives life. Believe in that son because he is just. Let's pray.